Our sermon text is one verse today. We're back in Matthew chapter 5, what's known as the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. We took a break from it last week to talk a little bit about eldership. So as we get back in, just want to remind you what this is, these so-called Beatitudes, what Jesus is teaching here in this section. This is something of a portrait of the kingdom of heaven. This is a portrait of the kingdom of heaven citizen. This is what is valued in the kingdom of heaven. And this is really who we are as Christians, who we are becoming as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So, so far we've gotten four big brush strokes on this portrait. Okay, number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their deep need for God to rescue them. Uh, As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are not self-righteous, self-justifying, self-affirming people. We are very aware of our deep need for forgiveness and mercy and grace and salvation. Number two, blessed are those who mourn. We grieve over our sin. We grieve over the sin we see around us in the world and the brokenness and the consequences of it. We are not those as Christians who excuse sin or take it lightly or embrace it as a lifestyle. It grieves us because it grieves God. Number three, blessed are the meek. So as poor in spirit and mourning over our sin, people, we are meek. We are humble toward God, and we're humble toward people. We're humbly dependent upon God's grace toward us, and we're humbly gentle toward other people. Because who are we to be brash and arrogant and bold? We're just forgiven sinners. Number four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we as Christians crave God's righteousness in ourselves, in our own conduct, in our own character, in the world around us. We just want to see his righteous ways lived out. We we are not satisfied with the, the empty calories that this world offers us. We want to see God's righteousness borne out in us and in the world. And then today we're going to add a, an additional one. So this is who we are and who we are becoming. The additional beatitude is going to have to do with mercy. Let's just read verse 7 together. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's just start simply by trying to understand what that means. What does it mean to be merciful? Usually when I think of the word mercy, I first think of someone who is guilty being let off the hook. Someone who should be punished, not being punished. And I know I've explained it to that way, I've explained it that way to you many times before, and that's true. But the New Testament idea of this word is actually broader than just that. It, I've got a couple of different definitions to give you for it to help you understand what it means. It's a broader idea of compassion. To be merciful is to be compassionate and generous in response to other people's suffering. To be merciful is to outwardly act on the pity that you feel for people who are suffering and are in need. To be merciful is to see and care and act when other people are suffering around you. So the opposite of merciful in the broadest sense of how the Bible uses it would be Ebenezer Scrooge. 
I know we're a long way from Christmas time, but that's a character I think we're all familiar with. So bring up whichever image of Ebenezer Scrooge first comes to mind. I say Scrooge? Maybe I didn't, but Ebenezer Scrooge that first comes to mind for me is from the Muppets Christmas Carol. That's the best version of a Christmas Carol. That would be the opposite of merciful. Ebenezer Scrooge, he's cold-hearted. He's stingy toward the needs of his employees and the, the orphans and people that are in need of charity. He's, he doesn't see it. He's blind to it. He doesn't care about it. His heart is shut off to it, and he's unwilling to lift a hand to help even though he's really wealthy and he could. That's the opposite of being merciful. So if we have the opposite over here, Ebenezer Scrooge, then what would be the epitome of merciful? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the epitome of mercy. He is the perfect, most merciful person who has ever lived. The majority of the times that you will see the word mercy used through the gospel is people who are sick or hurting or suffering coming to Jesus saying, have mercy on me and heal me. And Jesus did. He exhausted himself helping people who were suffering. And that wasn't even the main act of mercy. Obviously, the highest act of Jesus' mercy was giving himself on the cross so that his very enemies, the rebels, we sinners, could be forgiven and made right with God. That was his highest merciful contribution. But on the way there, he was just oozing mercy on everybody around him. All these people who were sick and uh outcasts and leprous and untouchable. He was constantly healing and caring for them and helping them because he was merciful. So we do not want to be like Ebenezer Scrooge. I don't think that's news to anyone here. We do want to be like Jesus Christ. I don't think that's news to anyone here. Blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall receive mercy. So now that we're getting an idea of what it means to be merciful, what does it mean that the merciful will receive mercy? Is it saying that if you are merciful toward people, people will be merciful toward you? Well, no, I don't think that's exactly what he's saying. That's closer to the idea of maybe karma or something. If you, what you put out into the universe, the universe will send back to you. And that's not really borne out in our own experience either. Merciful people are treated cruelly all the time. So I don't believe that's what it's saying. Is it saying if you're merciful toward people, God will be merciful toward you? Well, I think we're much closer now, for sure. But we have to be careful because that almost sounds like that means you can earn God's mercy by being really merciful toward other people. And if you're not merciful enough toward other people, then God won't be merciful toward you. But we know that can't be true because we know how salvation works and we know how God works. None of us deserve God's mercy. That's kind of inherent in the definition of mercy. So we don't earn his mercy by being merciful. It can't mean that. Salvation comes by grace through faith. So remember, this is sort of a portrait of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is what kingdom of heaven citizens are like. They're poor in spirit, they mourn over their sin, they're meek, they're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, and they're merciful. And as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they receive comfort from God, they 
receive an inheritance in the end. They receive satisfaction for their craving for God's righteousness, and they receive mercy. Now, they receive those things not because they earned those things with their poverty of spirit, with their mourning, with their meekness, with their hunger. This is just part of the package of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is what they're like. This is the blessing that they enjoy. They enjoy the first fruits of God's mercy now because they are saved by Jesus Christ, and they'll enjoy the full harvest of it later when Jesus returns and his reign and rule is made complete. This is confusing because there's a couple of different passages that put showing mercy and receiving mercy so close together that you almost can't tell which one comes first. It's like the chicken and the egg. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Some people will say, well, obviously the chicken comes first because without the chicken, how could you have an egg? But then somebody else would say, nay, without the egg, where did the chicken, from whence did the chicken hatch? It almost feels similar when you start trying to figure out mercy and forgiveness because the Bible often puts them so close together. What comes first? Do we become merciful and forgiving people and then therefore receive God's mercy and forgiveness? because that's the kind of person we are, or do does God forgive us and give us mercy, and then we become merciful and forgiving people? In the Lord's prayers, he teaches us how to pray. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Like That almost seems like our past forgiveness of our debtors therefore puts us in a position to receive forgiveness. But again, we know salvation doesn't work that way, so what's going on? I think... There's a parable that Jesus gave that I think is clarifying, and I want to read it to you in full. It's Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 21. It's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now, try to, try to visualize this like it's a story unfolding before you here. I'm just going to read this passage. I think it's going to help us to understand uh, this beatitude. So Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Like how many times? He must have had someone really aggravating him. And he's saying, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive this same doofus that keeps doing the same stuff to me? up, Up to seven times? That must have seemed like a large number in Peter's mind. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times. And Peter's initial reaction would probably be like, oh, good, because if he does it one more time, I don't think I can forgive him. So I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, which is a figure of speech of saying, like, infinitely. You, you just have to keep forgiving. Now, that's kind of a hard teaching, especially if it's the first time you've ever heard it, and especially if you have somebody that's wronging you up to seven times in a row So Jesus understands that that's a difficult teaching, and he goes into a parable. In verse 23, he says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. He wished to call in his debts. He had servants that owed him money, and he wanted to settle that and get the money that was owed to him. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's about 20 years of wages. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. 
So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, which is a closely associated word with mercy, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That would be like a day's wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, 20 years worth of debt I forgave you, because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I think what Jesus is teaching here is the transformation that takes place as you receive God's mercy and forgiveness necessarily transforms you also into a forgiving and merciful person. And if you're not forgiving and merciful, that proves that you did not actually receive that transformation of receiving God's forgiveness and mercy. You couldn't. It's like it reprograms your DNA to be that humbled, to see your need that clearly, and to cry out for that level of mercy from an infinite God who very rightly would cast you out, and then to receive instead mercy just by, act, by virtue of undergoing that transformation, you will be a merciful and forgiving person. You extending mercy and forgiveness to others really proves out that you have received it from God. So the one who would not extend mercy and forgiveness clearly is one who has not received it from God. It is so powerfully transformative. We have received infinite mercy from God. How could we not offer that to others? The people who did not offer mercy Mercy, the opposite of merciful in the Gospels, were the Pharisees. And Jesus had his harshest word for them because they felt that they were self-righteous. They felt that they didn't need any charity from anybody. They didn't need mercy. They had accomplished their righteousness through their own willpower and their religious activities, and therefore they were merciless to those around them. They had never received God's mercy, and so they couldn't offer it to anyone. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's all intertwined. Being merciful, receiving mercy. So how do we apply this? I have a couple of of thoughts on how to respond to this, and they're pretty brief. It's pretty simple. The first one is to remember the mercy that you have received from God through Jesus Christ. Just simply remember it. I think we can forget how much mercy we have received. Remember the mercy that you've received from God through Jesus Christ. Where would you be if it were not for God's mercy toward you? 
What would your life be like if God had not been merciful toward you? If God had not provided for you the parents he provided for you? If those parents were the ones who led you to Jesus Christ? If God had not provided for you the church that he provided for you? If God had not brought the Christian influences around you that pointed you toward Jesus? If God had not saved you, if God had not ever communicated to you the good news of what Jesus had done for you, what would your life be like? What kind of person would you be? I think especially for those of us who grew up in the church, we're so used to the mercy of God that it almost, we can become blind to it. And we can start to actually think in the back of our mind that we did all this, that we accomplished our salvation, that the reason we're generally moral and upright people is because we're so good, but it's all only the mercy of God. If it wasn't for the mercy of God, you would be sprinting away from God and toward whatever your body desired as fast as you could. And the fact that you're not isn't because you're really great, but it's because God is really merciful. We did not pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. God pulled us up by his mercy. That's the only reason you and I are here. We should see ourselves the way Paul saw himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Paul, the apostle Paul, who accomplished so much for the kingdom, wrote, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. As we see those who have rejected God and his word and his truth, as we see that their lives spiral out of control, we ought to never look down on them and say, tisk, tisk, tisk. Why aren't you more like me? We just ought to be so grateful for the mercy we've received because we would be doing the exact same thing if it wasn't for God's restraining mercy upon us. And we ought to be desperate for them to receive the same mercy. We should never be self-righteous. We should never post self-righteous social media posts about all of our self-righteousness. We, we should be so humble because we are the foremost sinner. You are the most sinful person that you know. You know your sin better than you know anyone else's, just like Paul was the most sinful person he knew. It's mercy, it's mercy, it's mercy. But it genuinely is mercy. Like, I don't say all that to make you start to feel like, oh, gosh, I am a jerk and a loser. <laughs> That's right. I'm glad I came to church this morning. I say all that so that we'll appreciate the lavishness of the mercy that God has given us. I mean, you, if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior and you're following him as your Lord, you are genuinely cleansed and forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. God looks at you and he genuinely sees Jesus' perfect righteousness, and he doesn't see your sinful failure yesterday when you snapped at your wife or your husband or your kid or whatever. Like the mercy is so real, it's so lavish. Our wallets are just overflowing with 
wealth of mercy. And so now we get to distribute that to others. That's who we get to be as citizens of the kingdom of God. We get to see the needs of those around us and care about those needs and act on those needs because we have been so seen and cared for and acted upon with God's mercy. It's kind of like, you know, when you get a new car and then all of a sudden you see it everywhere on the road, like you never noticed a Toyota Camry until you got your Toyota Camry. Then you realize, oh gosh, it's everywhere. Everybody has, you start to notice it because it's yours. I think it's the same as we, the more we notice our own mercy that God has given us, the more we'll notice the opportunities to give that out to others. And so that opportunity for the sarcastic jab for us as Christian citizens of the kingdom becomes an opportunity instead to use our words mercifully. That opportunity to stick it to that person that has disagreed with us or has hurt us becomes instead an opportunity to give them mercy. I think this passage is just to encourage us to embrace this kingdom sensitivity that's in our DNA now because we have been so transformed by God's mercy through Jesus. So remember the mercy you've received and then just lavishly give that out to others, any opportunity that you see this week. I think that's our simple response. I do have a third one, though. I just want to celebrate the evidence of mercy that we see among us as a church. As I was thinking about this, that this week, I see a lot of evidence of mercy among us, and I think that's something we can praise God for. I have a little list here. I'm going to read through it quickly. It's meant to be anonymous so that no one feels puffed up with pride because I mentioned them or mad at me because I forgot that they showed me great mercy yesterday and I didn't put it on the list. Uh, but some, there'll be some giveaways in here. I think it's evidence of this mercy in us when we go to extraordinary lengths to give free Chick-fil-A to people, and we don't have to. When we get involved in the foster system in a way that we can do to help foster children be cared for. When we stay up all night to listen to a roommate in distress and provide care for them. When we side with our friend who's being gossiped about in the group text. When we welcome new people into the church who aren't a part of our normal uh, socializing, so we bring them into the fold. We see that they need to be brought into the fold. When we forgive our former employer who mistreated us. When we're quick to check on someone when we hear that they're suffering when we give the pastor an envelope of cash to give to someone in financial need anonymously. Actually, the better way to do that is to go through the deacon's fund so there's good tracking for all of that so that I don't lose an envelope of cash and someone thinks I stole an envelope of cash. But the mercy is evident in the act. When we patiently listen to someone who is less mature, when we forgive one another when we slip up and accidentally hurt each other's feelings because we were careless with our words. When we see someone overwhelmed with a big project that they do not have the skill set to complete and we go and help and spend a whole day of our time. When we help 
raise our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, when we minister to residents of the nursing home. Here's a good one. When our pastor jumps the gun on a decision that's going to spend the church's money when he should have brought that to the board first, we help him with it instead of slap him on the wrist and smack him around about it. Uh, I'll tell you what that's about briefly. You know, two years ago, we hired a summer ministries team to come. It's a couple of college students that come, and they help with youth ministry or children's ministry. We didn't put that into the budget for this year because last year was crazy. We couldn't do it last year. Didn't know how our finances were going to look this year. Didn't know if we'd be bringing in a summer ministries team. I knew that somewhere, probably like back over here maybe in this part of my brain. But then when our regional youth director called and said, I've got a great team, but they need more work. I've got a couple of open weeks. And I just said, we'll take them. Like I, did, I should have talked to the board about that. That's money that's going to have to be spent. I, don't even, I didn't even know if we had it. But I, before I thought better about it, I was fully committed to it. So you know, I had to go to the board and say, all right, here's what I did. And within like probably two minutes, two of the problems that we we're going to have to solve was housing. You have to put them up somewhere. And the executive house where we did it two years ago was occupied. And then the financial part. Within a couple of minutes, uh, two different board members privately messaged me. One of them said, they can stay at our house. And the other one said, I'll donate some money toward it. Like, That's mercy. They could have clobbered me for that one, but they were really merciful. I see evidence of it in the rapid response to Facebook needs. If anything is ever posted on our Facebook group of a need, the response is always swift. I see mercy in the the dedicated devotion to our aging parents that we see among our church members. And one more, I see it in the patient attention that many of our adults give to our children when they're here. So I just share all that with you to encourage you. I think God has really done a great work among our church, and I see a lot of evidence of it in you. And I was filled with a lot of gratitude as I thought about it this week. So as we've thought about these things, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. The Holy Spirit may have brought to mind some act of mercy that you can carry out this week. That's not a random synapse firing up there. That's probably the Holy Spirit, and you should probably jot that down and follow through on it. It's not mercy if you only see the need and care about the need. It's really only mercy if you act on that. So the Spirit may be prompting some action in you. Just don't hesitate, because that's who you are as a citizen of the kingdom of, of heaven. It's okay to have itchy trigger fingers when it comes to mercy. We are wealthy, wealthy, wealthy with God's mercy. So let's spend it lavishly on others this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy towards sinners like me and like us. Lord, please help us to just live in a state of joyful gratitude in your mercy this week and generously dispensing it any opportunity we see. Give us eyes that see the needs around us. Give us a quickness to respond. Give us sensitive hearts to the people around us. Let us be merciful people this week in Jesus' name. Amen.